But this is a, a difficult passage. I think it's a difficult passage to hear. I think it's a difficult passage to interpret. As you look at this and you read James 5, 1 through 6, this is probably the most condemning passage in all of James. He just lets us have it. He's going to correct us again. It starts off with, come now. When he says, come now, we know that there's about to be a correction. Last week I told you it's the same as when I call Oran. I say, Oran, come in my room. We've got to talk. He knows that there's about to be a correction. He knows that there's about to be a discussion and probably some action that follows. But what if I went into my room and I called Oran to come in for correction and Karina showed up and I carried out the correction on Karina that Oran deserved? You'd all be like, what? That's not right. Oran's the one that, that I was wanting, that I was talking to, and yet Karina came in the room and you corrected her? And so we have to make sure that we have the right audience, right? Who was James talking to and is he talking to us? And so reading this passage this week, I stepped back and I began to read James over and over again. Because as you read just these six verses, I think you could get lost in just these six verses. And what does this mean? And who is he talking to? And I said, I want to, God, I know this is a book, I know this is a letter, and I know James was writing to an audience, and he was a pastor, and I want to understand it in context of this letter. And so I began to read James over and over again the entire letter. And as we talked about at the beginning of James, James is a pastor and is riding his flock. This is, these are people that he had done that were part of this congregation in Jerusalem and that had been sent out. They had left Jerusalem because of persecution. He had walked with them and he had taught them. And now he's writing this letter. And it was a letter to the church. And so these are believers. These are people. They were Jews, but they professed faith in Jesus Christ. They were following Jesus Christ. And as you look at these verses, a lot of the commentaries, a lot of people would say, this is really harsh language. How can it be talking to the church? How can it be talking to the people of God? How can it be talking to those who are following Christ? It sounds pretty judgmental and pretty condemning. And they say, well, this is, this is what we call in literary terms an apostrophe. It's where James was writing this letter to a specific people, to a specific group, and then all of a sudden, for six, after four chapters of doing that, for six verses, he decides to address someone else, and someone else is not there. And then later in verse chapter, in verse seven, chapter, oh, now I'll come back and talk to who I was talking to. And I tried to process through that, and I tried to consider. I'm like, I just can't see it. Like, why in the world would he write a letter to a church and then not talk to the church and then come back to talking to the church? Why would you write a letter to someone who's not there? Why would you write a letter to someone who's not going to hear it? So as we read this, this is for believers. This is for us. We don't get a pass. We have to consider this. If we are followers of Christ, we have to consider what he's saying. And so as you look at James as a whole, he's had this, this theme, this concern for, for our duplicity, for our double-mindedness, our, how we are hypocritical, and how we put on one thing in one situation and one face in another situation. He said in the first chapter, he said, we ask for wisdom, but we doubt. We're double-minded. We're, we're unstable in all of our ways. He says, we hear the word and we forget, instead of being doers of the word who act. We claim this faith, 
But then our works don't demonstrate it. And he took the entire chapter in chapter 3 to show this, this duplicity of our heart. And how I have the same heart come blessing and cursing. I have the same heart come things that bless God and things that curse our brothers and sisters. We're duplicitous. And he presents a solution. What's God's solution for this? And it's a gospel wisdom. In the beginning, he talks about wisdom. In chapter 3, he says you can have this gospel wisdom. And what's different about this wisdom is it's not just this understanding, but it's this understanding that makes its way out in our lives, that we can actually see it lived out. And gospel wisdom is different from any other wisdom because it's wrapped up in humility. It's wrapped up in meekness. That's its primary uh, factor. It's a primary uh, indication of gospel wisdom. And so I want to read chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, and go back just a little bit as we get this picture so we can understand where these verses uh, fit in. And he says in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, you've left me. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You can't be, you can't make the world priority and make me a priority. It says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose this for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God desires to be first. He desires for us to focus on him, for us to prioritize him over the world. And in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourself. We submit. That's the hardest part. To admit that I need God. But when we submit, we become humble. We say, God, this is who I am before you. And we talk about this first part of the gospel, that I am more desperately evil, I'm more desperately wicked than I could ever dare imagine. That's the truth. And I realize that, and I submit to you. But as soon as we submit, then we get to experience the second part of the gospel. And he says he gives us grace. And we begin to understand that at the same time that we're more evil, more wicked than we can ever imagine, we are more loved and more cared for in Christ than we ever dared hope. And so we get to experience this grace as a result of our submission. And in the end, in verse 10, he says, then we're exalted. When we humble ourselves before God, he will exalt us. He'll raise us up. So that's gospel wisdom. That's a godly response. But we tend to move in our own solution, our own response. And we tend to respond with the worldly ideas and worldly wisdom. And so look back at chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. This is a description of this worldly wisdom that James has already presented. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. As he explains this worldly wisdom, instead of being wrapped up in humility, it's wrapped up in pride. It's the exact opposite of a godly gospel wisdom. 
And the two ways that he describes it is that we have this bitter jealousy and we have this selfish ambition. Those are just different components of pride. And if that's in us, it results in disorder, it results in every vile practice. And so to submit, we have to confront our pride. We have to deal with those issues. We have to come to the place where we realize that's who we are. And James tells us how to deal with that pride. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. He says, Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And then here's where we deal with our pride. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And as much as I wish that it wasn't, that's what dealing with our pride is supposed to look like. That's what James explains to us. But he doesn't just leave us there. He starts to give us practical application. And as I read this over and over again this week, I started to see that in even the passages that we had just been over. He, he tells us to, to, to mourn, to weep, to humble ourselves, then he'll exalt us. And then he gives them these practical applications of how they're doing that, of how they're demonstrating pride. And as we studied in chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, we saw this where you speak evil against your brother. We start to do this comparison. Our pride shows up as we compare with each other. And as we compare with each other, as we start to judge each other. As we judge each other, we condemn each other. And so we have this bitter jealousy that's finding its way out and it's manifesting in our lives. And he says you've got to correct that. When you judge each other, you judge the gospel. And then he goes from this idea of comparison onto this idea of what we looked at last week, how our pride shows itself, and our control. We want to control things. We want to, he is sovereign, but we want to take some of his sovereignty. We, want to, we think we know what we can do. We know what's going to happen. We have control over the situation. And we try and push God out of that position in our lives. We want to be first. And he says you can't do that. You've got to say, God willing. You've got to see me as a sovereign God who's completely in control, who's completely free, and yet I'm going to give you grace. Because we have to see our lives in that way. So our pride shows up as we compare each other with each other. Our pride shows up as we try and control our lives. And then as we get to this passage, this section, I think our pride shows up as we try and seek out comfort, as we look to comfort ourselves. And so I went through all of that so that we won't take this passage out of context. And then we'll realize this passage is for us. And so let me read it now. And then we'll go through it, verse by verse. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Six verses. There's only one command. There's only one thing that James tells us to do. He says, weep 
and how for the miseries that are coming upon us. And so just like we said, well, okay, well, is this for believers or non-believers? Okay, this is for believers. This is for followers of Christ. And then you're going to ask me, well, but then he says this is for the rich. Are you rich? Okay, so am I rich? And as we talked about this even in sermon prep, the word rich came out and the, and the conversation went, well, it's relative. It depends. We can consider ourselves globally and we're rich. We can consider ourselves, you know, na- nationally in Southern California. Maybe we're rich. We can consider ourselves in the neighborhood. Are we rich? We can look at each other. We can compare. There's all different standards. And no matter what we did, we couldn't come up with a standard to say, okay, this is the place. This is the amount of income. This is the wealth that you have where now you're rich. The government can't figure it out. Right now it's a, uh, a big issue, a debate. When we look at tax law of what's determined to be rich, right now there's a, is it 200,000 for an individual? Is it 250,000 for a couple filing together? No one can agree. And wherever it's at, the people that are there don't think that they're rich. So rich is relative. But if you look at this passage, James is not condemning them for being rich. He's condemning them for what they've done. He's condemning them for their works. It's not what we claim to be or what we don't claim to be, but what we demonstrate with our lives, the actions that we do. And so it doesn't matter if you think you're rich or if you think you're not rich. The heart of this passage, and what I want to ask you to do this morning as we go through this, is we would consider their behavior. And we'll look at these behaviors, and I want you to ask yourself, am I behaving in a like way? Does my life demonstrate similar works? So let go of the fact, am I rich or am I not rich? Look at your life and say, does it look like what they were doing? Because that's what James was discussing. That's what he was pointing out. And so repeatedly in the passage it says, you have. All right, we need to look at what they did. And James says over again, you've done this, you've done that. And so we're going to look at three things that they did. They laid up treasure, they accumulated. They took advantage of other people, particularly the poor. And then they were living a life of indulgence, a life of luxury. Those were the three things. And so as you look up this treasure that they were, they were hoarding, that they were gathering, that they were accumulating, it's got three different things that it says. It says your riches, it says your, your, your garments, and it says your gold and silver. And the best way to understand this is that their riches was basically because this was an agricultural society. They were gathering up the grains from the harvest. Everything was related and depended on the harvest. And so if they had more than an abundance, they could gather their grain, they could store it up. And if you had stores of harvest, you were wealthy, you were rich, you had resources. But they had to decide how much were they going to save. And for me, as I process through this, one of the things that we do that, that Nita and I have decided to do is that we save. We save some of our income. And I will tell you that it's biblical to save. And one of the things particularly that we have identified that we want to save for is a vehicle. We have four kids. We, go to, we have to get them to school. I have to go to work. We have vehicles that, we have, that, are, that are needed. They're needed for us to function. And so we decided let's set aside a specific amount of money each month so that when the time comes and we need to replace that vehicle, we'll have money to do that. And that sounds great. But we have to decide what kind of vehicle are we going to save for. Right now we have a, a used minivan. 
Are we going to say for a used minivan? Are we going to say for a slightly used minivan? Are we going to say for a brand new minivan? Are we going to say for the brand new minivan that's on the showroom floor that's spinning around? What are we going to say for? And so we said, no, we're going to save. We want a reliable car that will get us where we need to go. That will take care of our family. That's it. A used car. That's good. That's what we'll save for. And then we said, well, how much do we save? And we had to decide, well, how much are we going to set aside for this next van when the time comes? So we decided an amount and we started to set that aside. But what happens when we get to that in a, a year from now, two years from now, we have that money aside and my current van is still going. My current van is still doing a great job. Saved up the money I think I need for it. What am I going to do with that money each month? Am I going to continue to save it? I can save a little bit more. It's in my budget. I can save for a nicer van. We can move up to the slightly used van. And maybe I get to the slightly used van. Now I can save for a new van. I mean, God's extended the life of my current van. I can just keep saving so I can have a nicer van later. And if you guys are following me, that's where I would start to accumulate. I've saved for a need, a specific purpose, but yet then I start to, to save more and save more and to kind of hoard that and keep that in so I could get something better. Not necessarily something that I need, but something better, something I could enjoy. And we'll see later that those riches will rot. He moves on from those riches to these garments. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. And I've never had a moth problem. Right? But my understanding from that time and in that culture, these garments that they wear, they were actually heirlooms that were passed down from family to family. And they demonstrated your identity. They demonstrated your wealth. You wore them at specific times to show everybody, look at who I am, look at from the family from which I come and my position in this society. And it has this idea that their, their closets, their storage would be full of these garments. And to my understanding, the moths come, not if you have one, not if you have two, but when you stuff things, when you stuff clothes together. That's when the moths come, when you accumulate them. I have a friend at work. At Christmas time, he wears a brand new tie every day. It's not brand new, but a different tie every day from Thanksgiving to Christmas. He has a Christmas tie for each day between those days. It's really cool. That's fun. We get to see what tie he's going to wear. But then as he started to collect more ties, and well, now he's got too many ties, and there's more ties in the days between Thanksgiving and Christmas, so he decided to make them holiday ties. So he wears them from Thanksgiving all the way to New Year's. But I was thinking about that. I was thinking about my own closet and thinking about all those ties sitting in his closet to maybe be used once a year. And is he just collecting them together? Is he accumulating them? Is he hoarding them? I don't know. The last piece is gold and silver. This was their cash flow. This was their income. This is what they had to spend. And again, they were accumulating it. And if you talk to any financial advisor, the first thing he's going to ask you is, is what are your goals? What are your saving goals? And I've never heard anyone say when considering like a 401k or something like that, you should, if you can, you should maximize your contribution. If you can give it, give it all. Set it aside. Save it. Let it work for you. And I've talked to people like that. So, so what are you saving for? Well, I'm saving for retirement. Okay, well, how much do you need for retirement? Like, well, well I don't know how much I need for retirement, but I can always use more. So I'm just going to continue to save and continue to save. I don't really have a goal for it, a purpose for it. I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I'm just going to continue to save. I'm going to maximize my plan. And so as you look at these three things, as you look at 
the resources they were gathering, as you look at the clothes, the garments, its position and status, as you look at their finances, their income, they were accumulating it and they weren't using it. They were gathering it and they were storing it. They were holding it up. They were hoarding it. And as you look at this passage, it says you were doing this in the last days. We're saving this up. We're hoarding this up in the last days. As we pray that the Christ could come back, that this world could be done, and yet we're busy collecting. We're busy hoarding. And that's nonsense. I remember one of my best Christmas presents ever. The most memorable Christmases. I got the Millennium Falcon. Right? And anyone that knows from Star Wars, the Millennium Falcon, it's the big round ship that Han Solo flew. And, and for that, that toy was huge. And you could take it apart. You could, there were compartments. You could put the, the figurines down in it. It was amazing what it would do. It would light up. You could, it was just amazing. And it was expensive. And I got the Millennium Falcon. And I remember having that. And I remember struggling... Am I going to play with this? Am I going to play with this? Okay, I'll play with it inside. I don't want to mess it up. I, well, am I going to play with it outside? I don't, I don't want to... And I struggle with this, this idea of am I going to use it? Am I not going to use it? Or should I just sit it up on my shelf and just look at it and admire it and realize how cool it is and how cool it is that I have it? And I will tell you that God doesn't want us to hoard and to collect His blessings. He doesn't want us to accumulate. He wants them to be used. And He wants them to be used for His kingdom. And when I say used for His kingdom, He wants them to honor Him. And He wants them to demonstrate love for other people. And I really believe that's the heart of what James is saying here. That's the heart of what he's speaking to. That's the purpose of our resources. Not to accumulate, but to love God and to love others. And so I want to ask you, are you hoarding your resources? Are you holding on to them and not using them for the kingdom and not using them for other people? And I think personally we have to ask ourselves this. And it may not be finances, it may be your time. We all have the resource of time. Are you holding back your schedule? Are you holding back your time? Are you trying to protect your time? And this is time for me. This is time I want to have for myself. Or am I going to use this time to honor God and use this time to love people? Or do I just want to hold on to my schedule and keep it to myself? I want to encourage you to go home and look at your closet. Some of us can walk in. Some of us just open it up. But look at your closet. Are you using everything in your closet? Is it serving a purpose? Or are you collecting things? Look at your garage if you have a garage. Just walk through your house and say, what's the purpose of these things that I have in my house? Are they serving a need? Are they serving a use? Am I honoring God with them? And am I loving others? Are you saving money? And again, I will tell you, and you may say that I'm speaking double, but it is biblical to save. It's biblical to save. But are you saving for a purpose? Are you saving for a reason? And is that reason a need or a way that will honor God or that will love your neighbor? That should be the purpose of it. So we have to consider that individually for our lives. But we have to also consider it for us as a body. 
We need to think about Livingstone and think about what is it, how is it that God has blessed us with resources collectively and how are we using them. When we were at the park on Sunday, we were cooking, we were, we were warming tortillas, we were putting out the tacos. It was an amazing sight. And it was about 7 o'clock and I heard the question brought up, how long are we going to go? When are we going to stop? And Keith from the edge of the barbecue heard that comment and he goes, we bought 150 pounds of meat, I prepared 150 pounds of meat and we're cooking 150 pounds of meat and we're going to serve 150 pounds of meat. This is for the purpose, this is what it's for, we're not going to take it home. There's not going to be leftovers tonight. We're going to use this that God has given us and we're going to love others with it. We're going to give this out to the neighborhood. We're not going to stop. And I look around and it is a burden each week for me to walk when we come in this building and in this space and we think about how are we going to use this space how are we going to use this resource that God has given us are we going to collect it and keep it for ourselves and keep it nice for ourselves or are we going to use this as a place to demonstrate the gospel to honor God to love our neighbors I want this place filled up. I want the neighborhood to be coming in and out. I want there to be kids in here. I want there to be after school programs to have all these hopes and all these dreams that we have to actually respond. We have to do that. And my fear is that a year from now, that two years from now, that, that when our lease is over, we'll look back in this space and look back in this building. And I pray that the primary reason was not a place to store our sound equipment and store our chairs. That it would be a place that God has blessed us with it, God has given us this resource, and that we are called to use it. We have to use it for His purpose. So if our focus is accumulation, we tend not to focus on other people. And if we focus, I think even more than not focusing on other people, we tend to take advantage of other people to accumulate more. It's just natural. In verse 4 you see James describes, he says, You've dishonored and you've taken advantage of others. Particularly here, he's talking about the poor. He says the laborers, those who, who harvest your field. Specifically in that time, in this place, that was the poor, that was the immigrants that lived amongst them. It was those without rights, those without education, those without resources, those without a security net. And those were the people that were out in the fields that were harvesting in, that were bringing in these resources that they were going to accumulate. And God doesn't say that it was wrong that these people were in the field. He says that it was wrong that they held back their wages, and they held back their wages by fraud. They didn't pay them timely. And in that time, in that culture, it's even part of the Old Testament that you would pay the laborers the day they deserted. You would give them the wage the day that they earned it. Because they were waiting on that. They needed that to make it to the next day. They didn't have a storehouse. They didn't have, they weren't saved up for six months. They needed it for today, not even for tomorrow. And so you were to distribute that. You were to give it freely. They earned the wage, now give it to them. Don't hold it back. And what happens here is our accumulation becomes more important than someone else's need. We would prefer to accumulate than meet someone else's need. And here it also suggests this idea of a legal loophole. That it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't illegal what they were doing. But it clearly wasn't just. It wasn't according to God's word. It wasn't according to God's heart. 
But they had found a way, they had written laws, they had created this system which they were able to interact within and feel okay about it. And I think for us, we experience this most commonly uh, collectively. This is something that are, are created through structures and systems in our culture. And it's something sometimes we interact with and we experience and we don't even realize it. And when that happens, the poor are taken advantage of, the poor are dishonored. And we've created these systems that extenuate that circumstance, that, that actually increase the gap between those who have and those who don't have. And if you look culturally, you look historically, across all time, that we right now are at a place globally where there is the largest gap between those who don't have and those who have that has ever existed. That it's just continually, over time, the gap has gotten wider and wider and wider. Those are the statistics. That's the data demonstrates. Because that's our nature. That's worldly wisdom. And you may say, well, I don't employ anyone. I'm not responsible for anyone's wages. But I wanted to share a story from someone in our body that does, that is responsible for wages. Jovan has a business. You know, Jovan has a business. It's a, it's a, a landscaping, pool cleaning, lots of whatever he can do, he's going to do. But he's got guys that he employs. And part of this is I've talked with Jovan. He wants to pay them an appropriate, a fair wage, a wage that they've earned. And so as he's determined to do that, he's had challenges around that. Because a lot of his jobs he has to bid, he has to give, here's my estimate for what it would require for me to care for your lawn, to care for your yard on a month-to-month basis. And he told me he had this one guy that came to him and he said, you know what, I've seen the work you guys do, you guys do better work than my current guy, I'd love to see, so what, what can you do for me? And Jovan knew this, he knew it was going to be hard to beat the price, but he decided, okay, these are the wages I need to give to my guys, this will provide work for them. And I'm going to make this offer, and they're really there's not going to be profit in this. It's just going to be a chance to serve, a chance to generate income for those that are working for me, and the profit is going to be minimal. And so as he went back to the guy, and he made the proposal, the guy goes, "That's 30% more than my who I'm, how I'm currently paying. You want me to pay you $100 a month? I'm only paying $70 a month." But Jovan had set it up where there was no profit. But the reason that was is because he was paying a certain wage to those who were working for him. And where this other guy, he was not paying the same wage. He was paying a wage probably below what these men deserved. And you say, well, I don't employ people, but we participate in that. We're, 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 we're presented with this choice, and I get to choose. That guy got to choose. Am I going to pay the guy who is going to require me $30 more a month, but he's going to do a better job, and he's paying his workers appropriately? Or am I going to go the cheaper route? Because it can save me money, and actually it'll help me hold on to my money, and it'll help me accumulate my money a little quicker. And you still may be thinking, well, I don't pay for services in my yard. I don't have a yard. I live in an apartment. But all of us, at some point, we go out to eat. And when you go out to eat, if someone waits on you, someone serves you, someone brings you your food, brings you your drink, takes your order, you contribute to their wage. At the end of the meal, you get your check, and at the end of the meal, you're going to tip them. I'm going to give them a tip. And at that point, you get to decide, how am I going to respond? What wage do they deserve? And a lot of times, individuals in this 
serving this way, that's, a, that's the largest part of their income, their, the, the money that they're generating is through their services, through their tips. And we could sit there, and you might say, well, I just took my family out, it cost me $50 for us to eat this meal, and now they want me to put $10 tip, a 20% tip? Well, maybe not 20, okay? Okay, let's go down to 10. 10, you know, I'll give them something. But right in that moment, you're determining, am I going to hold back these wages that are due from this person that just served me, that just took care of me, that just took my order? Am I going to hold them for myself? Even though I spend all this money on the mill, I'm going to hold back this little bit so I can hold on to what I have? Or am I going to give that as it's deserved? Am I going to be generous with that wage? Do you dishonor others for the sake of your own comfort? So we accumulate, we take advantage of others. And then lastly, James says that we live in luxury and self-indulgence. And you're thinking, I don't live in luxury. But is there any part of your life, any part of your day where you seek and you focus on your pleasure, on your enjoyment, on what you're experiencing and on the things that are around you? And again, like being rich, it can easily be dismissed. We can make it relative. Well, I don't live as luxuriously, luxuriously as this individual. I don't indulge as much as this person. And how I wish the Bible would give us a very fine line, a very distinct line and say, you know what? This is the amount you can save. This is the amount you can spend on recreation, on enjoyment, on material things. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't give us an amount. It doesn't give us a percentage. And we have to go to God and say, God, what do you have for me? How do you want me to live in a way that will honor you and that will love others? How do I deal with that? So we don't get a pass. We have to consider this. And as we consider, I want us to think about one of the biggest financial challenges we have. For those, except for those that are destitutely poor and those that are extremely rich, everyone in between, the most difficult thing for us to do financially is to live within our means. We would not live beyond. And I will tell you again, just as savings is encouraged biblically, debt is discouraged biblically. It's for extreme circumstances, but we can't stop there. If you are living within your means, that's good. That's a start. But as followers of Christ, as believers, I truly believe what James is saying here and what I see throughout Scripture is that we are called to live below our capacity. God gives us a capacity of resources and we are to live below it. Not just live within it, but live below it. And if you look at that scripture, you look at the church, one of the main things is to tithe, is to give an offering. That all of us should be, God gives us 100%, and yet we're going to take a percentage of that off. We all should live below our capacity because we're taking a piece of that and giving it back to God who gave it to us in the first place. So there's none of us here that should be living to our capacity. We should be living below it. And when you're rich, when you have more, I think there's a greater responsibility. The more that you have, the more that you are called to use, the more that you are called to give. You've been given much, much is going to be required. You, you've been given this, you have an overabundance, and you should redistribute it, you should give that. It should be for God's honor, 
and for loving on other people. Making more doesn't mean that we should automatically live at a different level of luxury. It's just more use for the kingdom. We're responsible to use it more. So the question is not if we're rich, but are we doing what James corrected them for doing? Do we accumulate and hoard what God has blessed us with and what God has given to us? Do we take advantage of others? Particularly the poor and those without resources. And do we live a life that prioritizes our pleasure over our priority for God? There will be evidence against us. As you read this passage, you can't help but see that there's judgment. There is accountability that we're going to have before God. He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, because your gold and silver have corroded. There's going to be testimony against us. Those wages that we held back, the very wages that we held back are crying out to God. That the labors that we held that money from, that we, we do that, we take advantage of other people for our own accumulation. He says they're crying out to God. They cry to the ear of the Lord of hosts. And that means He hears it. He is going to respond to it. And at the end it says, Our hearts have been fattened. Look at verse 5. It says, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And that means what it sounds like it means. It doesn't sound good. But as we talked about our hearts in chapter 3, out of it comes blessing and out of it comes cursing. If we accumulate, if we focus on ourselves, if we guided by our pride, by our, our need to be, our bitter jealousy and our selfish ambition, our hearts are just going to grow this layer of fat. And that fat is going to be trimmed. It's going to be slaughtered. We're going to have to deal with that. We're going to be accountable for it. There will be consequences. He says it will be a destruction of our flesh. The corrosion of our gold and silver will actually eat our flesh. What we gather, what we held on to, it will transfer from those riches and it will, it will burn like fire. So we'll have to stand before God and give an account of how we used what He gave us. Of how we responded with the resources that He's blessed us with. And so in the end, we need, we desperately need this gospel wisdom. We need this wisdom that's wrapped up in humility. We don't need the wisdom of the world. Because if we hold on to the wisdom of the world, we're just diminishing, we're disgracing the very gospel that saved us. We're just putting our hand up to Christ and saying, I don't care what you did for me, I don't care who you are. I'm going to live in a way for my own ambitions. I'm going to live in a way to compare myself with others, to be selfish, to be jealous. And we diminish the gospel. Look at verse 6. And don't miss this point. It says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Literally, it says here, You've murdered and condemned the righteous one. This is talking about Christ. You've done all these things. You've accumulated. You've taken advantage of others. You've lived in this luxury. You've saturated yourself with with material things and satisfaction. And as you do that, you have murdered and condemned the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You've taken it for granted. You've diminished it. You've disgraced it. When we accumulate, we diminish the gospel. When we take advantage of others, we dishonor the poor, we dishonor God. 
When we prioritize pleasure, we show that the gospel is not a priority. It's that clear. And it's way beyond you and I. It's way beyond what we're going to experience. It's way beyond these, these miseries that are going to come upon us if we choose to live in this way. It's about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's about this gospel of grace that saved us. And it says He does not resist you. Christ is not stopping you. Right now, He's compassionate and He's patient. Right now, submission that we talked about that's so difficult, it's voluntary. But as you read on in James, it says the judge is standing at the door. There will be a time when he's no longer compassionate, when he's no longer patient, when he will come and when he will deal with us, when he will deal with our lives, when he will deal with our work. And it's hard to say that, it's hard to tell you guys that, but that's what this says. And you can submit now, or you will submit later. It says one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We will not have a choice. But right now we have a choice. Right now we can submit. Right now we can give our lives back to God. Right now we can take these resources and we cannot afford them. We can take what God's given us and we can love on other people. But it starts with humility. Seeing ourselves for who we are. As we're humble, we submit. And James was very clear before he gave this his practical application. If we submit, if we humble ourselves in the presence of God, He will exalt us. He will raise us up. And so this morning, have you submitted? Have you come to that place where you have submitted to Christ because you've humbled yourself and you see who you are? I see who I am before God. I am more sinful. I'm worse than I ever could imagine. When you embrace that and you receive that and you admit that and you receive this grace, grace follows submission and God will give you that grace and you'll realize how loved you are. And if you've already done that, then the question here and the point here is James is talking to the church is are you continuing to submit? It's not a one-time deal. It's repeated. It's over and over. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, and I thank you that as we read it, as we hear from you, as we work through some of these passages, Father, it just seems so clear that this is not from man. Lord, I wouldn't have included this. I don't know if this is how I would have set it up, Father. You've chosen to reveal this to us. You've chosen to show this to us. But we have this responsibility. Lord, as we understand, Lord, as you've given us your grace, Father. Lord, may we live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Lord, as you just told us in the book of James, Lord, he who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, for him it is sin. And Lord, I pray that you would just purify this body. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look into our lives. Lord, that we would be honest. Lord, that we would not dismiss this message thinking, oh, this is not for believers or, or this is not for, for me because I'm not rich, Father. Lord, we have resources. Lord, we take advantage of other people. Lord, we, we, we want to hoard. Lord, we want to accumulate. 
Lord, we want our satisfaction and not yours. Lord, show us areas in our lives, Father, that we may repent of that, that we may turn from that, Father, that we may honor you, that we may submit, Father, that you would give us grace and that you would exalt us, Lord. Lord, we trust you to exalt us. Lord, may we not try to exalt ourselves, Father. Lord, may we take the lowest seat at the table and wait for you to call us up. Lord, please do that in my life. Lord, please do that in this body. Father, speak to us this week as we consider this. Lord, let us not let it not just go in and then go out, Father. Convict our hearts, Lord, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.